Bonzilla presents Star Trek. Each week, we warp speed into the world of Star Trek. This week, Leonard Nimoy steps into the director's chair to resurrect his beloved character. It's 1984 Star Trek Three: The Search for Spock. Hello, everybody. Welcome once again to Bondzilla Presents. I am Nick. I'm Will. And uh, it's time to continue on with our, our 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 fun April month. You know, we had Godzilla versus Kong. We got that bonus episode right at the beginning, uh, and people have seemed to really enjoy it. Um, one of our longest episodes to date, honestly. I think it actually is technically like our longest outside of the finale uh, that we've ever been on the mic for. Um. And it was a blast to record. It was a blast to watch. And uh, I think uh, I'm excited to talk about the the other two films for the, the two regular episodes for the, for this month. Yeah, I think I um I watched a a Snyder cut amount of Kong of Godzilla versus Kong, just going back and repeating it. Mm. So I think I've seen it like at least three full times oh, by nice. now. And then I just go back and I watch like the highlights of like that. I, I think that that, I like. that is honestly like we kind of talked about it uh, in, in the actual episode itself. But it is one of the nice things about it being on the streaming service. Mm-hmm. Like, yes, we want to see it in a the theater and we want to be in that crowd. But it is just like it's just nice to be able to go to like the fight moments or like the specific like crazy stuff that happens in the movie just to kind of revisit that. If you just want to be like, oh, I, I kind of want to see, you know kong jump yeah. off a building and punch godzilla like there is a nice thing where it's like i can enjoy the whole movie but i can enjoy the bits and pieces as well it's funny because like well like you want to get in it, it in as many times before hbo max takes it off of because i yeah. believe it's on hbo max for 30 days it's for a month and then um, it'll probably come back again like later down the right line. Yeah. right and then and then it'll have like its video distribution which i'm looking forward to and um and it, it inspired me to go back, and I I, w- I went through all the special features of, like it just explored the DVDs and Blu-rays of all the other MonsterVerse movies. Uh-huh. Um, and then the one follow-up I do want to say real quick that I think is interesting that we couldn't talk about at the time because it just didn't happen yet. I find it super awesome this slight groundswell for the MonsterVerse. Yeah, that has happened since since then. Because I think we always knew there was like a contingent of people who followed these movies. Um, but it is funny, like, I, I think that it is one of those movies because I think like Godzilla vs. Kong is the one that got everybody jazzed. But then it's like it retroactively made everybody's like, well, oh, I guess, like, I guess I do kind of like that we've been getting giant monster movies. And, and, I, and I do love this retrospective like despite what you may think of each individual movie i have seen a little bit of this retrospective appreciation for it as a film franchise and Mm -hmm. like the whole like 
oh, like each director is like kind of doing its thing and and especially in a world of like, you know, traditional blockbusters and superhero films like that, like this one, this franchise does stand out a a little bit. Um, Now, I, I, you know, I'm not saying like it's like moving heaven and earth for it, but there is like this acknowledgement of the MonsterVerse to the point where like even like Legendary is like kind of like joining in on the fun of like continue the MonsterVerse and everything and it, it I think just like the actual fan base has been solidified yeah. and, and I, it's and been I, and with all I mean it's it's not like you know there's that contingent of fans where you know there was that point where some fans were like you know Snyderverse versus MonsterVerse or whatever but it was nice to just see the MonsterVerse really do stand out on its own even away from all that controversy and and all that kind of fandom stuff and just be like, you know, the movie was super successful. People seem to really dig it most for the most part in terms of the actual fights. And it's like the positive, the positivity towards the movie has been super positive. And, mm-hmm. you know, the box office has been, again, relative to like the times we live in has been great. It's been the best of any of these movies internationally and worldwide. And I think, you know, part of it's like they're, you know, when we're kind of seeing it, but it's also, I think there is that genuine interest in, and some genuine love for the, the movie and the monster verse as a whole. And, you know, we'll see where it goes from here or what's what Kong, what happens next with Kong, or what happens with Godzilla. But, you know, at well, least it, we got it, something it, fun. It speaks to why we were talking about Godzilla in the first place, because I think that the character in the iconography of both of those characters, even if you bring Kong into it pr- over, take they they outweigh any feelings of the individual movies so and then sometimes that's frustrating because then like then the movie will come out and then everybody mm-hmm. then we get into the whole song and dance of like people like it or people hate it or, or or what have you but but it goes down to the thesis of why we did bonzilla in the first place is like at the end of the day even if there are a good amount of people who like the idea of godzilla maybe more so than they like a godzilla movie um there is still like this people where it's like, well, they'll go see it. They'll, they'll always like be interested in yeah, see there's, the giant there's, lizard do more. There's definitely still interest. And, you know, again, I just think that it just showcases that you do, even if it's beyond the monster verse, I think there's just a bright future for both uh, Godzilla and Kong, you know, that you can still do stuff with those characters and those worlds. And whether it's Toho or in the U S or, you know, you know, and we're still kind of moving on to both of them are getting like animated series coming up soon. Um, and, and sort of the future sort of is bright for, I think, both uh, winner and loser. Yeah. And then the next Godzilla thing we have is uh, the singular point anime, yes. which I've heard also fun things about. So I'm excited to check it out. Point. And I got, and like I said, the like Kong is also getting uh, the Skull Island mm-hmm. uh, anime series as well yeah. for Netflix. So anyway, so that was just a little follow-up on that. And Um, uh, yeah, for sure. Um, And we will be discussing more Kong a little bit later this month, for sure. Uh, But today, we are returning back to the world of Star Trek. Um, Having come off the very successful and uh, critically appraised and now legendary Wrath of Khan... We are heading into the third Star Trek motion picture, Star Trek Three: The Search for Spock from 1984. Yep. And I think uh, if we, I think we're just about ready. If we can just get into sort of 
the general production stuff and how this movie came to be the way that it is. Um, and if you're ready, I'm ready to I'm talk good. about, uh, let's go searching for Spock. Um, so our story begins the weekend that Wrath of Khan comes out. And it's very clear to everybody involved, but most especially the Paramount executives, that this was a home run. The lower budget with the big box office uh, intake and the, the general praise, and there's more interest in this, in this Star Trek franchise than ever. And Paramount is finally fully on board and saying, okay, we are going to make more. So the weekend it comes out, they call in producer Harv Bennett, who, of course, the TV producer who came in to to make Wrath of Khan on that lower budget. They bring him into the office and say, all right, start working on Star Trek three. And Harv said it was the fastest green light that he didn't have to pitch anything. He literally just says, go make the movie, go make Star Trek three. So Harv's immediate thought is, well, we teased all this stuff and I've, he's already talked with Nimoy, you know, at the end of Wrath of Khan, they teased all this stuff about, you know, leaning towards a way to find Spock to return to life so his immediate thoughts like okay well we're gonna go and do this and we gotta get Nimoy on board and we're gonna go you know make a movie about them bringing Spock back somehow and luckily for Bennett Nimoy as I mentioned in the last episode is also very interested not just to return to the Spock character who is he has found that renewed love for but he's extremely interested in directing the movie he he, he has this sort of inspiration and sort of themes he wants to explore with this potential bringing back of the, the beloved Spock character. So Paramount's first avenue, though, is to ask Nicholas Meyer to come back. And of course, Nicholas Meyer says no, because he's not happy with the additions of the Remember and, and, and the, the hint that Spock was a lot could be alive, that he wanted to make that definitive. So and, you know, he was at that time very much like Martin Campbell with um you know, if we're talking about Bob Martin Campbell with Goldeneye, where it's like, okay, he did his one. He's not like a franchise guy necessarily. Like, you know, for the time being, he's going to move on and do other stuff. But right as Nicholas Meyer says no, Nimoy has scheduled meetings with the Paramount executives. And he literally says, okay, I'm interested in returning. I'm interested in making a movie about Spock's resurrection. And I want to direct that movie. That's, that's my thing. And I want to do it. And at first, you know, Paramount executive seemed like, okay, well, we got a home run here because, you know, people are going to be interested. Spock's a beloved character. Boom, let's do it. And one of the other Paramount executives is like, yeah, no, I've had the same thought. I think you'd be a great director, uh, Nimoy. Um, so at this point, Leonard Nimoy is like, okay, I'm in. I, I got the directing role. But then mysteriously, weeks go by and he doesn't hear anything. And he's like kind of worrying, like, I thought we all agreed on this. Like, what's the problem? So he calls the Paramount executives back and it's like, okay, well, you got to go meet with Michael Eisner, who's still kind of the head of all this production stuff, the Paramount. And uh, Nimoy's like, fine. Okay, that's fine. I mean, I, I would have to meet with him anyway. I'm going to be the director in one of his big franchises. So eventually there's kind of more back and forth. Eventually he gets his meeting with Eisner. And at first, you know, Eisner is trying to kind of play nice and like, you know, trying to kind of be, uh, you know, forthright through the meeting, just be like, oh, yeah, yeah, we can drink the director. But eventually Eisner's like, no, I can't do this. I can't do this. I can't I can't live this lie. And Nimoy's like, what are you talking about? Like, what's going on? What's what's the problem? It's like, 
I can't in good conscience let you direct this movie because you hate Spock. You wanted it in your contract in the last movie that you wanted him killed off because you hate the character and you hate Star Trek. And I can't have someone who hates Star Trek directing this franchise. It's big for us. And Nimoy's like, I don't know what you're talking about. It was never in my contract. It wasn't my idea to kill Spock. The the contract, my contract for Wrath of Khan is in the basement of this building. Why don't you just go and get someone to go grab it? Because I can prove to you that I never had it in my contract. And then I was just like, no, no, I mean, if you say so. I mean, I just, I don't know where I heard it, but if you say so, it wasn't in the contract. And then the deal for Nimoy to direct was pretty much done on, on the spot, essentially. So Nimoy is coming in to direct uh, this movie, which is initially titled Star Trek Three: Return to Genesis. Uh, so Harv and Nimoy get right on to uh, creating this movie. And their main thing is they know the audience is going in with expectations. Uh, uh, Nimoy said himself that, you know, if we went into this movie and they were searching for Spock and at the end of the movie, Kirk turned to the camera and said, sorry, we didn't find him you know, the audience is going to throw rocks at the screen. So we got to make sure it's a movie that knows what the audience, you know, gets to what the audience wants. The audience wants Spock to come back. So the movie has to lead up to Spock coming back. And one of the things Nimoy knew was successful about Wrath of Khan was sort of this connection to the original series that, you know, Khan, they brought Khan back from the original series and Harv, that was his whole thing was that we need to connect to the original series. So Harv, uh, Nimoy suggests to Harv Bennett to w- watch the episode Amok Time from season two, the season two opener, which is about um, Spock going through the Palm Far ritual. And, you know, that's kind of the famous fight between Kirk and Spock in that episode, which inspires Harv to be kind of the more mythical elements and the, the more spiritual elements of the Vulcan race. Harv initially comes up with the last scene of the script. And works backwards from there and tries to figure out, okay, how do we get to this last scene? Uh, Another thing that Nimoy wants to do uh, in terms of connecting it back to the original series is bringing back some of the known alien adversaries of the Star Trek crew. Initially, the villains of this movie were going to be the Romulans, who, for those of you that know Trek, are a, a sister race of the Vulcans who have the same ears, the same look but have a much more warrior-based race. And Nimoy initially thought that, oh, having kind of that connection with Vulcan and the kind of tenuous relationship between the Romulans and Vulcan would make kind of the Spock stuff really pop. But Paramount instead decided uh, or, or, or a pitch to Nimoy, well, what about the Klingons? Because the Klingons are the more famous of the Star Trek kind of alien races and people, you know, they're like, people might get confused if the Romulans, because, you know, people don't know the Romulans so well, they might think they're Vulcans. And eventually Nimoy relented and actually accepted this idea that, no, the, the Klingons are a better foe, because as Nimoy put it, they're more kind of operatic, that there's a, they're bigger, they're, they're more over the top, and it's, it creates a much more fun villain to work with. Though as a consequence of this, the original ship in the movie that's designed the Romulan bird of prey, which is from the original series episode, balance of terror becomes the Klingon bird of prey. And originally they kind of pitched like, Oh, maybe the Klingon stole it. And we show that, Oh, this captain is really ruthless as Klingon captain. He just stole a Romulan ship, but eventually that's all dropped and it just becomes a Klingon bird of prey. So both the Romulans and the Klingons have bird of prey within the star Trek canon. 
So, yeah. So basically, Nimoy is wanting to make this a very big, epic, operatic movie. He wants kind of these big kind of like journey and the big kind of destruction of a planet. Like, so they kind of are talking about what, what do we do with Genesis? Let's destroy this planet. Like, let's give it a time uh, you know, a time clock to to make sure they oh, they have to save Spock before the planet blows up, all this sort of stuff. And, and Nimoy and Arvard just basically right on top of it. They're both right on the same page of this is what we want the movie to be. So much so that the script was basically done in six weeks. And basically they did a first draft. They did a quick second pass at the draft, changed some of the details, like the Romulan stuff and the Klingons and everything like that. But basically this movie was just so, Harv and Nimoy were just so on board with each other that there was just no no question about what this movie was going to be and how it was going to proceed. Um, and one thing that Nimoy did also bring to the script from his perspective as an actor and, and as a member of the series is he really wanted to give each of the original series crew members a moment, a scene, which he had felt that, you know, they had, you know, they obviously had moments and lines in the previous films, but he wanted every one of them to have some sort of moment that's so memorable and and showcases why you love the characters because Nimoy thought that the success of Wrath of Khan was based on the camaraderie and the characters of the crew of that original series team and he wanted to just emphasize that because he also wanted to give his friends more opportunities to kind of have fun with the script because he was very friendly with everybody on board. So with that script really quickly put together, it's time to begin uh, the casting of the movie. And obviously, as with all these Star Trek movies, all the main cast return. Um, the main caveat in terms of Shatner's return is that he's also doing a television series, a police procedural called TJ Hooker at the time. So his schedule is very tight, that he is basically doing this in between seasons and his last day on Star Trek is right before his first day on TJ Hooker. So they had to make that kind of work. I want to start, though, with some of our new characters and starting off with our main villain of the movie, uh, Christopher Lloyd, uh, as the Klingon uh, warlord Krug. So initially for the role, Nimoy wanted uh, Edward James Olmos, who would go on to be a big star with the Battlestar Galactica series, but was big, you know, big Hispanic star on stage and had done some scream stuff at this time. Uh, would also go eventually go on to do Miami Vice a couple of years later. Um, but Harv Bennett was very much not on board with uh, the Edward James Olmos pick because he thought uh, Olmos was too short. And that when they had the bid, the big fight at the end with uh, Kirk and, and Krug, that he just felt that it wouldn't work. And eventually Nimoy like tried to try and tried to get almost in. He auditioned them by himself. He auditioned them for Bennett. He auditioned them for Paramount, but then Paramount basically decided, no, this is not, excuse me, this is not our guy. And Nimoy was finally relented. Harv's suggestion was one of the stars of the television series Taxi, Christopher Lloyd. And Nimoy was generally familiar. He loved um, uh, Christopher Lloyd on Taxi. He also knew of one of his earlier works in one, like a smaller role in One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest. Uh, but Paramount also was very much like, I don't know. I don't know about uh, Lloyd because Lloyd at this time was purely known for taxi and was purely known as a comedic actor. And they're like, Oh, but like, could a comedic actor really play this kind of Klingon, like this ruthless Klingon warlord? And 
Nimoy at that point became determined to cast Lloyd because Nimoy knew how hard it was to be typecast because after he had played Spock, that was all he was receiving. And he had the fight for kind of roles outside of Spock because people always saw him as Spock because no one gave him a chance to be anything else other than Spock. So when, when Paramount's decided, oh, you know what? Like this guy can't be anything else than, than a comedy TV guy. Nimoy's like, you know what? I'm going to, I'm determined to get him in this role now and prove to you that like he can do whatever. And as Nimoy said in an interview, he said, when he saw Lloyd's audition, he immediately called Harv, like, this is our guy. The dude's a chameleon. Like, he can just be whatever. Like, he can be our Klingon warlord. Like, it's, it's so different. And eventually, Paramount agrees, and Christopher Lloyd is uh, cast. Uh, Lloyd was very happy to play this role because it just, he said it was afforded him, like, really the first time that he was just going to play, like, a ruthless just villain someone who just had no kind of moral standing who would just go to the darkest places to get what he wanted. And he had a great time doing that uh, just as he would do later with judge doom and who framed Roger Rabbit, who he also says is one of his favorite roles though in very Christopher Lloyd fashion, sometimes he just kind of went a little too over the top for his own good. Uh, Robin Curtis, who we're going to talk about in a second, she said there's the big scene where, the, the at one point in the movie, the Enterprise comes in and Krug and his crew are on the ground on the planet, Genesis planet. They're like, oh, Krug, a, a, a Federation warship just came in. And Lloyd is supposed to talk into the communicator like is any Star Trek character would. But he kept just calling out to the sky. Like he kept just looking up with his arms wide open to just bring me up. And Nimoy had to constantly bring like, you know, dude, like you have to talk into the communicator, but that was just kind of Lloyd's style is that he just kind of really acted in, in the moment. Uh, Lloyd said he did struggle, but also had a lot of fun with the Klingon language, which briefly want to shout out Mark Orkland, uh, Orkland, excuse me, Mark Orkland, uh, who is the, for, for basically all time since this movie has been the official linguist of the Star Trek franchise. He was originally brought in Mark Orkrin to do the Vulcan language in the one scene for Wrath of Khan when in post-production they decided that they wanted to have those characters, Savik and, and Neem, uh, Spock, speak in Vulcan. And he was brought in when the Klingons were decided to make the transition into this movie because Harv and Nimoy agreed that they had really liked sort of the elements of the Klingons that were introduced in the original motion picture in that opening scene, but knew that that the Klingons had nothing really to do in that movie. They just said a couple lines, you know, and got destroyed. So they kind of wanted to keep the new designs, keep this sort of Japanese style dress and sort of, again, the warrior race that's kind of building up with them. And one of them was in the motion picture that, um, James Duhon, Scotty, had actually come up with some of the fake words that the Klingons used for their language. So uh -huh. when they brought in Mark Orkrand, they told him, okay, take whatever these words are, you know, and make a language out of it so we can basically translate any line. And Orkrand was a master linguist. Like, this is what he did for a living. He just translated, you know, you know languages and, and sort of all this sort of stuff. So he was basically making up this language based on those words from James Duhon that he made up for the motion picture. And he also said, Orkman said in interviews that for this first one, he would have to kind of change the grammar and change the language itself. If 
like Lloyd was having too much trouble speaking a word or if he said it wrong, okay, then now we just make it pronounced differently because that's the language because it's a made up language. Mm. Um, so, but Orkrin would be for the rest of basically up until um, the 2009 Trek film, whenever they needed to do Vulcan language, Romulan language, Klingon language, Orkrin was the guy. And Orkrin has also written three books about the Klingon language. So it's a pretty, he did a pretty good job. But in any case, the point is Lloyd loved kind of speaking that Klingon language. And it gave him, he said it gave him a lot of freedom that even if he struggled with the pronunciations, it just kind of gave him a lot of freedom with his acting choices. Now, we also want to talk about, as I kind of mentioned earlier, kind of a, a mix between an old and new cast, because we do have the character of Savik returning uh, from the Wrath of Khan, but it is no longer played by Christy Alley, uh, instead being played by Robin Curtis. So the story of this uh, is kind of the two sides of the story thing. The story that was out there for a long time was obviously the Wrath of Khan was decided to, you know, that was going to be the end and, you know, Harv Bennett and everybody was like, okay, well, this might be the last Star Trek movie. So let's just go out with the bang. So none of the contracts included any sort of sequel clauses in them. And so when this movie came about, obviously all the original cast wanted to come back for it because one, this was their, big star making thing and two for most of them like again really other than Shatner this was the only things that they were making you know ba- uh, other than an odd TV appearance here or there so everybody was super excited to come back but Christy Alley didn't have a sequel clause so she tried to you know you know demand a lot of money and then she kind of was like well I don't want to be typecast so I'm just going to kind of talk about an absurd amount of money and they basically and then they were like, no, okay, we're just going to have a new person because they didn't want to pay Christy Alley. So it really just fell apart. Yeah, so the story that comes out later is essentially from Christy Alley's perspective is that she found out that everybody got big contract increases for this movie except her. Like, you know, and she wasn't even talking about, yeah, like, you know, Nimoy and Shatner are going to get more money, but like everybody got significant raises in terms of their contract and she only got like a couple thousand dollars worth of a raise. So she was like, well, no, I'm going to fight for, you know, I, I was just part of that movie too. I was part of the success. I'm going to make a lot of money. And obviously they played hardball. And in, in retrospect, Allie said that it was probably best for her career at that point because she got to go off and do other stuff besides Star Trek, which eventually led to a really big role uh, replacing Shelley Long on Cheers. So she was happy at the end of the day. So they needed a new Savic. And Robin Curtis had literally just arrived in Los Angeles to be an actress and was just kind of going around and making her connections and happened to befriend the casting director of this movie who suggested that she come into audition. And then when Nimoy saw her audition, she was basically like almost on the spot hired, like you're the new Savic. So that's basically Robin Curtis's story. Uh, I do want to mention that in this sort of realm of Nimoy wanting to bring back those elements of the original series that he felt was so successful in Wrath of Khan, Nimoy also felt it was important to bring back Mark Leonard to play Sarek, Spock's father. Yes. Um, And it's funny because Sarek, I didn't really talk about this in that episode, Uh, Mark Leonard had also played the Klingon commander at the beginning of of the uh, motion picture. And Sark had played, you know, Sark was good friends with Gene Roddenberry 
uh, originally and became really good friends with Nimoy and the rest of the cast. And basically was, you know, he was the Romulan leader at one point. He was Sarek. He brought back for the animated series. Like they just loved Mark Leonard and loved giving him roles. And so again, Nimoy kind of in charge wants to kind of connect this back to the original series. He felt it was important to bring Mark Leonard in to return as, as Spock's father. Um, also, I love mentioning these things. Uh, one of the random, there's also another ship, the Excelsior and the first officer on the ship is one of those guys was like, I wonder who that is. Cause I've seen them before. And it's Mark, uh, sorry, Miguel Ferrar, who would eventually be the guy who made RoboCop in the original RoboCop. So I was just like, I always like kind of that stuff where it's like, Oh, right before, they get big. Um, and I also should mention that David Marcus uh, does return and Merritt Buttrick does return to play uh, Kirk's son as well. Um, so one of the main things about this movie was it, it just had just a slightly bigger budget for uh, the movie uh, than Wrath of Khan did, uh, about $16 million. So basically most of that was going to the increased salaries for all the actors and a little bit more for production stuff. But basically, very much similar to how Wrath of Khan took everything from the motion picture in terms of sets. Although sets were all reused, the models were reused. Um, there were some new things built, obviously, for the movie, most notably the Genesis Planet set, where they had to kind of build a bunch of these uh, different biomes. You know, we have the forest and the, the winter, and it snows in the forest, and we have a desert. And the main thing about that set was, despite the protestations of the uh, cinematographer who wanted to go on location to Hawaii and River Canyon and everything like that. They needed to build a set that could basically cave in on itself that could explode. So the whole thing about it was that they needed to build a bunch of trap doors and hidden walls for explosions and, and things that fall on the ground for when they needed to destroy the set at the end of production. Though at one point the set did legitimately get set on fire and the famous story about this is that William Shatner was the first arriving on the scene to save people and put out the fire and as he said later in his kind of very Shatner slightly joking but slightly serious way he said his main concern with putting out the fire was not to save people or save the sets his main concern was this will delay production and I literally have to be on TJ hooker the day after this production ends. So I cannot afford to lose a day. We need to save this set. Uh, in a very, that's such a, that's such a Shatner. It's such a Shatner. It's a Shatnerism. Um, one of the main things too, was that what was nice about the production of search for Spock was that, the, the Star Trek team could work with industrial light and magic from the start. Cause again, for Wrath of Khan, not Meyer and, and the screenwriters did all the storyboards on their own and then brought in ILM later. Whereas this one, they could bring an ILM on the forefront and just get their expertise in the special effects stuff and uh, the design stuff. Um, the other most notable thing that happens in terms of that is when they when Harv Bennett and Nimoy are thinking about this movie and they're thinking about that predictability Harv is like well we still need to give a moment we still need to give a big part of the movie something that's like on that level of Spock's death in the original which is where the idea of the quote death of the enterprise comes in and the team at ILM was initially very excited about this because 
the enterprise model was the same model that was built for the motion picture. And they had found that model to be hard to shoot, bulky, kind of not as beautiful as the enterprise should be. So initially they're like, yeah, we get to destroy the enterprise. And then Paramount's like, no, you can't destroy the actual enterprise model. Cause we bring that on tours around the country is like, this is the enterprise model. And we can't just you know, this is like the one that's used since the motion picture. And it's part of our like star Trek tour. So you can't do that. So eventually they built a bunch of kind of cheaper, smaller models to, to, for this big explosion. And originally the big explosion was kind of this big wave, this massive wave of energy and an explosion and everything like that. And then Harv Bennett, once they made that was like, well, one, that's too big of an explosion. Kind of like it, it was originally coming from the edge and it's like, it's too big of an explosion that realistically the Klingon ship would also be damaged or destroyed. And that's not what happens in the movie. And two, once they watched the footage, Harv was like, oh, you know what? This looks way too similar to this destruction of the second Death Star in Return Return of the Jedi. So then ILM's like, you know what? Like, fair point on that last one. So they redid the explosion to kind of have it more top down and just really focus it in, um, even though it was slightly more expensive to do. Um, And that's... Uh, I guess the other thing too, the last thing I should really mention in terms of this uh, is that Nimoy was initially worried about oh, what would it be like for these you know my friends to be directed by one of their crew members, you know, like one of the one of the team. And he was initially very nervous because it was again directing was something he was super interested in and super, um, you know eager to not just do Star Trek, but eventually to transition into directing other films. But, you know, it was this sort of thing where, you know, how is Shatner going to react? How's, uh, you know, McCoy going to react? All that sort of stuff. And he was very pleased to find that the team really warmed up to him quickly. And most people, uh, Shatner very much included, found it to be a very, you know, generous and good director. Especially because, again, from an actor's perspective, you know, Nimoy knew how to work with all these guys because he's worked with them for years. He worked for them in the original series and two movies. So he's very much knows how to work with, you know, William Shatner, though will William Shatner and, and, and Nimoy tried to um, pull a little prank on the team, uh, the rest of the crew. So there's a big moment in the movie where a big death happens. We'll talk about in the movie and, you know, Kirk has to react to it. So, Nimoy and Shatner are kind of discussing it and Nimoy's like, okay, everybody, uh, uh, Bill and I are going to discuss this scene. So everybody just take five out of the room, you know, take, get, get coffee or something. And then out of the room, everybody hears Nimoy and Shatner in a big argument. Like, no, I would never do that. Kirk would never do that. You're going to do that. Or I'm going to fire from this movie. Of course, it was a very big prank from the two of them that they were just having fun with the rest of their crew. But Nimoy, <laughs> but Nimoy said, no one believed it because they knew that wasn't the relationship between the two of them. Right. Uh, right. Though, though Nimoy credits all of his other crewmates, especially Shatner for some of the bigger moments of this movie. Uh, Cause I was watching one of the behind the scenes and it's like, Nimoy's always like, it's easy to make fun of Bill because of his way of talking sometimes. And, you know, he'll, he'll do the impression, but he's like, but Bill makes great choices and Bill makes fun choices and he knows Kirk and he knows that character so extremely well. And it was a pleasure to work with him on this one and the other movie that he directs, which we'll be able to talk about in the future. 
Uh, but otherwise, you know, there's a lot of it's just about the design, certain elements of, you know, the big space dock was a big deal. Uh, the the Excelsior, kind of the future ship was kind of based on a previous idea that wasn't used for Wrath of Khan. But pretty much the thing about this movie was that Nimoy and Harv Bennett were very much on the same page about what the movie needed to be. The movie needed about be about Kirk finding a way to, you know, bring Spock back and, and kind of bring a piece of himself back to, you know, to his soul, as, as, as mentioned many times in the movie. Um, and to really continue on sort of this storyline that was started with Wrath of Khan and, and to continue to explore the further outreaches of the Star Trek universe and the lore, you know, and, and kind of really start digging into that. And that was basically kind of the production of this movie, just very quick, very simple. They knew exactly what they wanted the movie to be and it, what the movie is on screen is what they wanted that movie to be. Great. Yeah, really, like it's, it's you know, there's other stuff, but I think it's, honestly, that's all I need to say before we can get I into I actually did, uh, I mean, obviously, I remembered as I was watching it or when it was over, but I actually forgot that Nimoy directed this one. I knew he directed the next one, but mm -hmm. I forgot that, I forgot that he did this one, so. Yes. Yeah, that's, so that's funny. And then it's also, and we'll get into this as we talk about the movie itself, but I guess it, it is funny because I I'd never seen this before. Um, and it's just interesting to look at it knowing kind of like that there's a follow up and then also retroactively knowing it's part of like an unofficial trilogy of films. And yeah, like uh, so. Yeah. So that so that'll that'll be interesting to talk about as we talk about the movie. Uh, for sure. Uh, mm -hmm. And if you're ready. Let's go finally find Spock. Let's do it. Let's do it. Sir. Your son meant more to me than you can know. I'd have given my life if it would have saved his. Believe me when I tell you, he made no request of me. He would not have spoken of it openly. Then how is Kirk, I must have your thoughts. May I join your mind? spoke of your friendship. Yes. He asked you not to grieve. Yes. The needs of the many outweigh the needs of the few. Or the one. Live long and prosper. No. Forgive me. It is not here. 
I had assumed he mind-melded with you. It is the Vulcan way. When the body's end is near. We were separate. He couldn't touch me. I see. And everything that he was. Everything he knew. Is lost. Please wait. He would have found a way if there was that much at stake. Spock would have found a way. Yes. But how? What if he joined with someone else? All right. So Star Trek Three: The Search for Spock, the follow-up to the highly successful uh, Wrath of Khan. And again, is just a reminder, Wrath of Khan was really what truly put this kind of Star Trek thing on the map uh, in many ways. And it's, it's what's credited as kind of really sparking this big interest in the, the, in the future sustained interest in the Star Trek franchise. So this is kind of a big follow-up to that, as well as, you know, as the title suggests, it's about kind of finding this very beloved character. You know, we talk about that we love the series crew, but the crew is very much anchored by that that main triumvirate, but really Kirk and Spock. Like that's really the core of this original series and the original series team. And then you have McCoy kind of going between those two is kind of, again, this kind of triumvirate that makes sort of the real leadership of what makes Star Trek, the original series, so good and so memorable. So you're really kind of banking on this series and this movie that's about finding and bringing back a very respected character that a lot of people love. And so there's a lot of pressure on this movie. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, one. so again, this is my first time seeing it. And what I will say is that my biggest takeaway from watching it is just I was happy to see the energy that I liked from like the likable energy that I liked from wrath of Khan continue its way into this one. Mm -hmm. And one of the things that I, I find interesting and fascinating is just how much the, I mean, for lack of a better term, the movie franchise just really pivoted um, right after that first one. Yeah. Um, because even looking at this one, there's a completely different type of energy to the whole thing. Um, and in some ways, it's a little bit more traditional, especially in comparison to the first one. So it's like that it puts that first one, the motion picture, into perspective as well. Mm-hmm. Um, but also at the same time, it it's just the movies definitely from two on become way more of like spacefaring adventures that are following characters that you like. Yes. Um, and then at what point were, was the um, next generation, was next generation had it started yet or not yet? Um, okay. We will talk about the, or we will actually talk about the origins of the next generation in the next episode. So stay tuned. But when did it, when did it start? Like, because uh, I I know that th- that was bet- kind of it, going on simultaneously to these movies still going. It starts on. between four and five. 
Okay. All right. So not too, not too, no, not too long after this long no. after this. So, but so it is funny. Like I was also thinking about that and just kind of like the themes and how these movies are going about its characters and the types of stories it's telling. And then how that compares to like the more traditional ventures that are going on in next generation, mm-hmm. because this, this one because these movies are always about like you know the fact that in in a humorous way the fact that like the enterprise crew are like these big kids like they're the, these big college students yeah who that's actually really f- like they like essentially most of these movies especially the first four are all about college kids who don't want to leave the campus yeah, that's and actually they, not a bad idea. That's not a bad like kind of comparison. And they keep on like just getting into all sorts of hijinks. And um and I thought this one uh hi- was that was a highlight of this movie. Absolutely. I think this movie Search for Spock I, I mean I I generally enjoy this movie. I think knowing cuz you know I've seen Voyage Home which is our next Star Trek episode. I think of this trilogy, I think it is just kind of it's it's the one that kind of is the step sort of below for me just slightly but i still think what's fun about this movie is i think there's a lot of really fun moments especially with these characters um and you know there's just a lot of fun ideas um with with the like you know there's just the camaraderie with the characters and what's going on with with kirk and mccoy and you know sort of some of the crazy stuff with christopher lloyd as a klingon like i just think this movie is just fun um, and I think that it has a lot of it has a lot of fun moments to it. Yeah, it, it's my one, and I and I should say that I enjoyed watching it. I mean, especially knowing that it's like part of like this kind of unofficial three arc story trilogy. Like mm-hmm. it, it definitely, yeah, I definitely see why you would want to watch like Rathacon, Search for Spock, and then The Voyage Home. Like that's that's a solid set of three. It's movies. not a bad triple feature, honestly. No, it's not. Um, but what I will say, kind of my criticism about this one was that the and the best way I can put it, it, it has like a story that I, I don't know how to put. I don't know where the pulse of this story is. I don't know how to put my finger on what the story is. The- and because it's a weird story. And I give it the credit because all three of these movies, while they are traditional in the type of movie they are, they're none of them are traditional spacefaring stories. Right. So I give all three of them credit for that. But this one, like the 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 biggest thing that came to mind was that while there is a lot of interesting stuff, and I actually think that when the movie ends, it hits a home run. Like it just it brings it all home mm-hmm. in a really good way. Yeah. Like I thought, like the final moments of this movie were awesome. But there's a level of the movie in in many ways feels like it is going to sound stupid, but it feels like, well, we got to get Spock back because he's one of the main characters and we're not going to keep him dead. So this is kind of like the episode that we're doing to get him back. Yeah. And I don't know if the movie fully overcomes that obligatory feeling and that's what i mean it's like a feeling there was just like a feeling of it where and especially knowing that there's a third movie 
Like it felt like there, it never quite for me escaped 100% the, well, this is the movie where we have to get Spock back. So then we can go on to the third movie. Yeah. It's, I think that's Does that real, makes sense. No, it's, it makes a hundred percent sense. Really I, ha- I, I do have that same sort of feeling because I think, again, it's a movie that it's a movie that succeeds on its characters and it's moment to moment gems, as I would say, like there right, are just right. sequences, like moments, lines, characters that really continue to stand out but plotting wise you know i think it just it really is this very simplistic idea right it's just very simple throughout the whole thing where it's just like the main plot is you know they gotta search for spock on the genesis planet while the genesis planet is blowing up you know and it's just kind of like that's we're getting from point a to point b we're getting from beginning to end in the spock resurrection just through that very simple story and there again, there are moments throughout that I think highlight the enjoyability of these characters and the enjoyability of Star Trek and the enjoyability of this trilogy. But there is just sort of this, the plot just kind of moves because it needs to move in some ways. Well, it, it, it's, and what's funny about it is that it, it's the one of the three movies that doesn't have a solid emotional through line mm-hmm. because like the like Ratha Khan is you know it's all it, it really does lean into that like you know um you know the growing older and the sins of the past thing and then Voyage Home is about like it, it, there's kind of I would need to watch it again to solidify to be, speak more eloquently about it because I've only seen it once but that one is a little bit about like, you know, everybody like kind of like finding your home and like everybody like kind of comes around to that, whether it's like they all get back to the Enterprise or Spock finds himself a little bit and they're like on classic Earth and there's a little bit of that. Whereas like this one, I don't. There's a weird also lack of urgency in this movie. Yeah, despite like, the fact that there is like a ticking time bomb, that there is a weird lack yeah, of Yeah, yeah, which which is strange because it never feels that way up until maybe the last like 15 minutes. Mm-hmm. And because, you know, for this search for Spock, like like it's for a movie that's called The Search for Spock, the search feels very casual. Right. Like it's like, well, we know what we have to do. We have to go get there. And then even the strangest part of the movie, which was like, this was like the big thing that like, oh shit, that's bizarre, was when we get baby Spock. Oh yeah. Baby fast growing Chia pet Spock. Baby fast. Yeah. So where, you know, cause the Genesis chamber kind of basically re rebirths him or the Genesis planet yeah. rebirths him. And then he's kind of like, a babe a child and then he's going to be growing fast and and i get what they're doing where they kind of like you know he's kind of very quickly going through vulcan aging and and that stuff was fine i i don't know if this movie found a good story to latch on to that as opposed to that's just kind of a moment mm-hmm. in, in the in the movie yeah um so that was kind of like just the experience of watching it. But on the other side of it, there were so many moments where I was like, that's awesome. That's great. That character's great. Uh, that little moment is great. The ending's awesome. So it, it was, again, yeah. it, 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 it's one of those things where it's going to sound like I'm dogging on the movie, but it, it really, it really is still enjoyable. It, it truly is a movie full of highlights. And again, it doesn't necessarily, because there are movies that 
there are movies that are more like yes they have like their moments but they don't gel in kind of a in a bad way where you don't really come away with remembering those memorable moments and i think this is the opposite this is the movie that yes maybe all the elements don't gel into like so, the greatest movie but the highlights are so high and and some of the you know some of these characters have some of their most fun moments in this movie that i you know it, it, you still come away with like kind of a, a positive feeling on this film at least like, for me one of the things is like in this movie, like the big thing, what's Kirk's son's name again? David. David. So there's a big reveal, like kind of like where this movie ends up going is that ultimately the reveal is like the Genesis is a failure project. Mm-hmm. And then like the planet is not going to be able to sustain itself and it's going to explode or some such. And yeah. And like the planet and, is rapidly aging, which is also right. Like Pat and that's interesting. And and I have to say, like the moment of him, like being like, well, I messed up and like, I tried to, you know, it's kind of like that whole, like I played God and it's literally going to blow up in my face a little bit. And that moment and him acting that moment is a nice moment. But in, in terms of the story, I don't know if like I felt any sort of, um, satisfactory conclusion to the whole like, well, Genesis failed, and right, and then there was like also a lot of talk where, uh, um, what was it Savic? Yeah, yeah, she's like, um, like, well, like, how many lives was it worth? And then I'm like, what did he like? He, yeah, it's like, well, don't get on his it's- case. Like, he didn't really do like it. Like the the stakes aren't that high. <laughs> Like, I mean, right. well, it's like the whole thing. Cause I, you know, I, why are you getting on his case so much? Yeah. I think there are better, I think you could have still done the, the, like, honestly, I think you could have easily done as much of the planet blowing up stuff without as much of that stuff. Like you could have just said like, Oh, it was, you know, it was meant to cover like a, a known planet. It wasn't meant to kind of make its own planet, you know, that sort of thing. Like, I think you could have done that where, and you still kind of, kind of get this sort of reflection on like, well, what if it had done, this on and I and I don't mean it and I don't mean it in a well it goes back on the previous movie type of way I just kind of mean it as like just the way it's told in this movie yeah too, it's just yeah. like oh so it ended up being a failure and I'm I'm kind of like, oh, oh yeah okay <laughs> no I I got you I got I, you. I didn't really I didn't really feel that that conclusion mm-hmm. to that mm-hmm. um but but the premise of it like aging really quickly was interesting yeah and I like that. It also led to, like, I do want to get, because this was the only note I wrote in the whole thing, was when they find uh, baby Spock. Yes. And, you know, and then uh, Savick realizes that it's Spock, and then she uh, calls up to the ship, and then she basically says, like, oh, it looks like we found, like, Spock reborn, or whatever, Mm -hmm. or regenerated. And then the captain is like, Savick, that's a extraordinary what would you like to do next (laughs) which is which was my that got a a huge laugh out of me i thought that was that was really funny by the way Um, before i forget the young spock his cries and his screams were dubbed by frank welker oh that's funny yeah so but early some early frank welker stuff for you frank welker heads out there um if you're up there somewhere um there's a lot of really like interesting things in this movie i think um if we're just gonna jump like i I think there's some stuff with the with the growing spock thing that definitely goes like crazy um 
most notably with that, because again, the whole thing is that they, you know, the kind of Genesis plotline at least to begin with is David and Savik from Wrath of Khan uh, are now on the science team and they're exploring the Genesis planet. And there's this whole thing where the Genesis planet is kind of this big reveal of it, you know, it's kind of a political nightmare for the Federation. So basically only the science team can go and like, you know, Kirk and, and other Federation starships are barred from going. Mm-hmm. And so they land on the planet because they read that there's a light form there. And that's like, that shouldn't be there. So I love to, cause they go to it. They, they, they're searching and they go to Spock's casket and it's all these giant microbes because again, the planet's aging very quickly. And it's like, Oh, the, there are these small microbes on Scott's uh, Spock's thing. And then they like kind of grew incredibly huge and they continue to grow throughout the movie. And then they see Spock and this box, you know, screams and they're basically like, oh, yeah, this is basically young Spock, mm-hmm. not, not young Sheldon, young Spock, though. I would yeah, hey, pretty much par- the same Paramount Plus. Yeah. Young Spock. Yeah. It, I mean, wouldn't it be the same show? Technically, pretty much. Yeah, <laughs> pretty, honestly. Yeah. But I lo- what the whole thing is like because it goes into this thing where obviously then they're stuck on the planet because of other machinations that happen on top. And one of the most famous scenes in terms of Star Trek fandom in this movie is when Savik realizes that Spock is going through Palm Far. Right, right. Which is this huge thing in, in Spalkin, yeah, Spock, Spalkin, in Vulcan biology where essentially you're kind of called to have sex every seven years. Right, That's basically right. what it is. Yeah. So in terms of helping young Spock kind of survive... Savik ends up having Vulcan sex with Spock. Oh, oh, see, okay, I didn't know enough about Star Trek for that's basically the implication of that scene. Yes, that's weird. It is. It's very strange. That's a little strange. It's a little strange. I didn't because 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 here's the thing too. Like you know, again, circumstances be away. They are. Robin Curtis has to be. Savic. And, you know, it's not like I think, obviously, the Christiali interpretation, I think it's the more iconic and sort of the more thought out version of it. But I don't think Robin Curtis does a terrible job of what she has. But she does have a little bit of just kind of a more like motherly look to her, which just makes the whole thing with, with Spock even more weird because it's like, yeah, he's kind of she's kind of taking care of him because he's like, this boy is growing too fast and he's experiencing this kind of weird sexual energy like much too quickly in his life in his lifespan but then she's it's still kind of weird when she's kind of going into this whole like the finger thing which is how i guess falcons have sex is according to the lore i i did not love robin curtis i don't again i don't think she's terrible but i also don't think it's i also don't think that this version of savik gives much to do with the character either to be quite honest it's a kind of it's a kind of a slightly different character yeah, yeah. I mean, I would agree with that. I mean, I I thought it was a bummer that Christy Alley didn't come back because yeah. I really liked her. In the I, last I know. One. I agree. I I think it. I think. And, and it's I, also I, like you don't. I even don't get... think. I was gonna say that I think that Christy Alley's version of Savic, even again, even if I don't think the Savic character is given enough of what she was in Wrath of Khan to really be Savic. Just the way that Christy Alley plays the character, I think would have added just those little bits to kind of make that role a little bit better. Well, but what make what made that character so good in the last one is that essentially that was classic Spock. 
Whereas yes. like the Spock that we were getting in that movie was like the seasoned, a little bit more humorful Spock. And she was the humorless version of Spock. And I understand that you don't want to do the same thing, but, and you, but you don't even have the luxury where it's like, it's not even like years later, right? It's it's like no, it's like, like it's essentially almost immediately. It's like a after. follow up to the right, yeah. right. So it, the fact that it like it just it did not the character didn't jive as well for me. I, I didn't really love the look of the character mm-hmm. all that much, um, and the portrayal of the character where it's just kind of like we're you know, which is a shame because and I kind of get they kind of do it here where. This this would have been like Kasavik was like, you know, kind of like more of like the the student learning these weird ways of the Enterprise. And like there was a chance to like at least have that same character now take up more of that leadership role, mm-hmm. which I guess they technically do. But I I I w- I. I don't know, I, 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 I was bummed that she didn't come back for it. Yeah, no, I agree. I agree. Um, but speaking of a scene uh like a two a, a a very intimate two people scene that was awesome was um the when Sarek comes back cuz Sarek yes. is great i think you and i are both on the same page oh where... it's uh, journey of, journey to babel which is Sarek's first uh, the first appearance of spock's parents in the original series is one of my favorite episodes of the original series and i right. love the character and i love the dynamic in terms of you know and especially the growth of mm-hmm. Sarek over this movie and then even into the next one, which he'll, he'll spoilers, he returns as well in that one. Um, I love well, the big line at the end of this one is like when he's like, when they said, like, well, doing this procedure or this ritual isn't logical, and then he says something like, well, you know, when it comes to my son, like, there's not logic- much that it, yeah, right, my logic doesn't like, you know, there's not much to my logic with when it right. comes to my son, or yeah, whatever so, is, yeah. so that was like the big kind of like, oh, look how far he's come, but um. But anyway, and, and the the entire scene between him and Kirk essentially mourning Spock was great. Yes. Cuz yeah, cuz basically they the Enterprise returns finally to Starfleet headquarters in space dock and they're essentially told like you're all commended for basically saving the universe, but you know, there's no discussion of Genesis, there's no discussion of anything that you just witnessed. And basically, there's kind of like no real answers to what their what their future holds. So Kirk is kind of holding, you know, in his apartment, holding a little kind of wake for Spock with the rest of the crew. Uh, and then they're kind of trying to figure out what the future holds and what's going on. And then, you know, what he's I love the moment, too, where it's like it's a great reveal, especially if you were a Star Trek fan or you knew about it, because, you know, he goes to the door of his apartment. And he thought, oh, Scotty's finally here. Because uh, Scotty is working on the new Excelsior project, and so maybe he's a little running a little late. And then the door opens up, and it's Spock's father, and it's just like a, a great little moment because it's like Sark. And then, yeah, because Sark's pissed off because he thinks that you know Kirk basically, uh, you know, didn't do the Spock justice and didn't do what Spock asked of him. And then they do this mind meld where they kind of relive the the final moments of Spock together. And also, what one funny thing about the this this movie is just like how like essentially Star Trek magic works because it, it's magic. It, it, it's yeah. like and, and and one of the characters calls it Vulcan mysticism, which is which is really funny. But I did love how like Sar comes in and he's he's just hounding Kirk about like you know like like what you you did nothing about Spock's spirit or soul or whatever. 
And then like Kirk, like Kirk had every right to be like, I, I don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> like yeah. what? But I did find it funny that because this Kirk, since he's so much more of an adult and he's like just more older and statesmanly, he finds even a polite way of just saying like, I have no idea what you're talking about. But it's like literally, you know, because he's like literally I would have done anything for your son. Like, you know, he meant the world to me, but it's just like, I don't know what you mean by like, you know, returning his spirit and it's like he, he never asked me to bring him back to the you know Vulcan or whatever so um this is where the remember from the last movie comes in because mm-hmm. it was because basically how Vulcan dying works I guess is that if you know you're dying you you could put your your knowledge into another person and then basically the you know, in the Vulcan kind of funeral ritual, the body and the spirit are kind of, you know, put together again in sort of a final like resting place sort of idea. Right. And you, you know, you can, we can still have a way to retain all of Spock's knowledge and memories and then all that sort of stuff. So Sarek of course, obviously thinks it's with, with Kirk because Kirk is the only, you know, it's the last person that Spock, you know, knew and obviously knows Spock very well. But as we discovered by rewatching the Wrath of Khan um, <laughs> and re- rewinding it using new state-of-the-art video technology uh, from the future, uh, it was actually McCoy who received Spock's Katra, as it's put in the movie. And I will say this right now. Uh, McCoy continues to be the hidden MVP of this movie franchise. Of course. Because all the stuff with McCoy in this movie is so fun. Like the, like, and it, but the first scene where like, he's like when someone breaks in the Spock's quarters, like right before they land and it's like McCoy in the corner and he's just like seemingly going crazy. And Kirk has no idea. And like, you know, he has this haunted lurk and it's like, why did you like get rid of my body? And it's like, you know, Kirk's like, what's wrong with you, McCoy? So that seems great. And then the next scene where they, you know, where McCoy goes to this bar at the uh, at the space station, which, by the way, has the Tribbles cameo, which I really appreciate. Yes, I did. I did appreciate that, too. I caught that. And he is basically I love this because he's like McCoy at this point is just a mix between himself and Spock, mm-hmm. where like like he's like a regular at this bar. So the waitress comes up to him and he's like, you know, what's your poison? You know, that's not your usual poison. Why are you, why are you ordering water? And, and then McCoy has to be like, ordering poison at a bar is not logical. <laughs> and then, like, the waitress is like, all right, like, you're, you're in a mood tonight. But then this weirdo alien dude comes up to him because McCoy's been searching for a way off the planet. And just, like, there's so many McCoyisms here where he's like, you know, it's like he wants to go to Genesis. He's like, Genesis? Like, yes. How can you be deaf with ears th- that large? Like, he has such McCoyisms. And then later when the, when the, when the Starfleet the security officer is like, how about I offer you a ride home? Why would I want a ride home if I'm trying to find passage off this godforsaken space station? Like all that sort of stuff. It's just great. And it's so much fun to see. Yeah. What deal with that. One of the things about McCoy that is great. And it's almost like, cause in some ways he's like really not doing that much, especially that he's done in the past two films. But there are some storytelling bits like the fact that like even as like a bit of like a more newer viewer as such as myself, mm-hmm. there is something that is satisfying about him being the one who basically has to go up for the 
um vulcan ritual mm-hmm. like there's just something kind of like just inherently if you know those characters and the movie doesn't really make too much bones about that no pun intended hey. but like it it's uh but the fact that like he respectfully goes along with the plan um is a very it, it's just a very satisfying conclusion to or not conclusion just like a payoff to bones and spock's friendship given like how the two are oh yeah like it is funny that like you like that is like the other great friendship even into like the newer kelvin movies yeah it's just how that's why i loved and what was it beyond when Mm -hmm. they paired those two off a little bit more with spock and and mccoy like it is a great pair off when you don't have kirk in the mix it's a fun dynamic yeah Yeah. for sure it's just thing because again that's why i call it the triumvirate because i think the relationship between Kirk and McCoy is great. The relationship between Kirk and Spock is great. And the relationship between McCoy and Spock is great. All three See, of that, them. That's the new show after Falcon and the Winter Soldier we need. We need the 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 Spock and Bones. Yes, the Spock and Bones show. Yeah. Uh, well, because the whole all this is leading up to the fact that, you know, obviously Sarek has told Kirk, hey, you need to retrieve Spock's body. McCoy has Spock's Katra. You need to bring up the Mount Salea on Vulcan so that they're you know the, they can finally put be put the rest and kirk is basically like you know this is kind of spock's death is already kind of a, a guilt on his soul and sort of this is like this is my way of like atoning myself and bringing back a piece of myself and at least coming to peace a, a piece that he doesn't have yet with spock but you know again we, we were talking about he's talking about like kind of his his one of his leaders and that's where we get the like you know the leaders is like i don't understand this vulcan mysticism Nobody's going to Genesis. We're not allowing anything, anyone there. Only the science team. That's it. There's, there's no. Exceptions. Yeah, because because that's also like another factor of the movie that is constantly a factor. Which is funny because I think that this is what I mean by then the next generation series balances this out because these movies are always constantly about like, all right, listen, you you had your fun. The the, the Enterprise is twenty or is like twenty years old. Like, you know, there's no retrofitting it. There's no getting it back up to code. It's like, you, you guys are done. Like, right. you just retire. Yeah, because that's <laughs> another element I forgot is that they they find out that the Enterprise is going to be decommissioned because, you know, it just got back from Battle Dam. And it's like, we have this brand new suit, the Excelsior, and it's better, and it's more modern, and it's 20, you know, there's no point of, like, refurbishing the Enterprise again when it just got that refurbishment, essentially. But Kirk comes out of that scene, and he, like, he goes, he meets up with uh, Chekhov and, and Sulu, and they're like, how'd it go? It's like, well, they told me no. Therefore, I'm going anyway. Like, that's very Kirk moment. But then we get sort of the breakout of McCoy from prison, essentially, and the 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 stealing of the Enterprise, which has so many really fun moments. Starting off with when McCoy, I love this scene made me laugh so hard. This moment is such a McCoy moment when Kirk kind of comes into McCoy's cell. And McCoy is like kind of all confused because he's been kind of knocked out or whatever. And he's like, you know, what's going on? And 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 Kirk's like, you are suffering the after effects of a Vulcan mind meld, my friend. And then McCoy just stands up and it's like sits up is like, that green-blooded son of a bitch. <laughs> this is revenge for all the arguments he lost. Like, <laughs> but then they like the, that whole sequence with them stealing the Enterprise just has so many great moments, like the 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 large you know the part of it it's like it starts off with sulu coming in and being like oh like you know kirk is needed by like the the starfleet leadership and then with the big you know then the big security guard shows up and he's like watch what you say tiny 
And then later when they come out with McCoy, when Kirk like punches his way out with McCoy, um, Sulu destroys the console tackle, like basically judo throws the security good. And it's just like, don't call me tiny. Like that mm-hmm. one is great. That's a fun moment. You have um, the scene with Ohura. The the scene with this was my favorite scene in in terms of and in, in retrospect, what I did like about the movie, and I actually gave it a bit of a pass in this movie because one of my only criticisms with all these movies is that for a crew that you love, it's almost like still some of them are still in lesser roles than others. Yeah. But I know in Voyage Home, it, it really is about all of them. Yes. So I so I kind of gave it a pass on this one. But in retrospect, what I did like about just the structure of the story is that there is a payoff to the fact that like the Enterprise is being decommissioned and all the all the, our crew members that we love have been relocated elsewhere. Yeah. So then all of their relocations come in handy, which mm-hmm. I, I, I liked that. But anyway, so the scene with Ahura was just... So great. And especially because I feel like a horror doesn't get like too much to do in mm-hmm. these movies. And that was where I was like, yeah, this is like, I, I like that. I like the scene where they come in and she is like, you know, he, she is working with this young brash, like, you know, I just want to get out in the stars and, you know, just like really get out there and see the action. And, you know, she's like, okay, all right. Uh, all right, Speed Racer, calm down. So then... And, yeah, because it's a great moment too where, she, you know, she's like, you know, he's like, why would you come here? It's like the most desolate, like, part of the sector. Like, there's nothing ever happens here. And, you know, she's like, oh, you know, I can afford a little peace and quiet. And he's like, that might be you for, like, someone who's at the end of their life, like, you know, like, end of their <laughs> life, like, end of their job. And, like, you know, you're right at the edge of retirement. But me, I need adventure. And, you know, just the look that he, <laughs> that she gives him is just that like. Was, that, he was, like, it, they knew exactly how and where to play that character. Because, yeah. like, I mean, as because it, it was definitely a comic relief character, and I and I laughed. I thought it was how it fit right. in the scene. And then it and then it's like when it's like, oh my god, this is so unusual. It's like it is. It's like, well, what are we gonna do? Nothing. <laughs> He's like, you're gonna go get in the closet. What? <laughs> And I thought that was awesome. And he's like, this can't be real. I was like, this, this isn't reality. This is fantasy. Like, right. just like, <laughs> and you can but, tell Michelle Nichols is having a blast. Well, again, it, it's like, and it, it struck me because one of the things was like, I liked it, but I think one of the reasons it stood out because a horror really doesn't have much to do in these movies. Yeah. Like, and I, and that was, it was just a moment where, and again, like, and it happened over and over in this movie. And that's why I like that it did pay off that like, everybody's been relocated and now they're coming together. And this is like the thing that really started at the end of the motion picture and went on is that the film just does a good job of like really successfully telling you that all these people are friends and then they're like their own little family and that they, they stick out for each other. And, and this film continues to deliver that feeling and moments like that. I thought, um, really um exemplify that i do want to also shout out when he did back into the closet finally like he's like fine like i go like and he's like oh he's just, he just like oh man like right right it, it was hilarious i thought it was it was great. it's it's and i and, and i know nichelle nichols has said that that's probably like among her favorite scenes she's ever gotten to do like in the franchise like that's basically their top two mm-hmm. um and then so they go up and they basically jack the enterprise um and i also love 
I, I generally love what these movies do with Scotty in terms of just his love, his deep love for his ship, mm-hmm. which, which again does come from the original series. I mentioned, you know, like you've seen Trouble with Tribbles where he like gets in a bar fight because they call the Enterprise a, a hunk of chunk. But I just love like this moment where, you know, obviously the whole fact is like they're trying to steal the ship and like, how do you steal a star? Like you can't sneak away with a starship. So they call upon this brand new Excelsior ship and they're all like high and mighty because it's got trans warp drive and all the new features and all the new technology. And then finally, when, you know, they're about, you know, the Enterprise goes in the warp speed and then the, the Excelsior is like, all right, trans warp speed, we're going to be faster, we're going we're gonna to catch up to them. Then the ship just dies, and there's just a little message on the screen from Scotty, who's just like, "Hello, Cap. Good morning, Captain." Like it just like this holds this situation of like Scotty just sabotages another ship because nobody insults the Enterprise, like nobody insults his baby. And I just love that stuff. I love that character part of Scotty because it, again, it continues into that next movie, which is going to be great. Yeah, I thought that I, you're absolutely right. Um, I yeah, want to talk. Uh, yeah, Sorry, just the whole. I just want to say, just again, the whole. I love that whole stealing of the enterprise sequence i just think it gives each character just a little brief moment of stuff to do and i also love uh kirk's jacket i love his jacket and his like big collar it's great um i was gonna talk about christopher lloyd for a little bit yes Um, please what one of the funny things about christopher lloyd is like and it's funny that you mentioned like him having to get reined in he especially at this point in his career he's just so intense yes that's really what it is about like his energy level is through whether he's playing this character or doc brown or judge doom just like or even his his original taxi character is like also very intense his taxi character like pretty much in the in the few like you know voice roles that he's done i mean even when even in the page master he's just so (laughs) yeah just so just intense and he's just so like he just has all this energy and he just throws it out at whoever he's performing to and i i love him for that i i just think he's so great and he's always in like he's always getting in your face and like i like i love it yeah i i i think it's a treat because obviously this is like even you know this is before back to the future and all that stuff so this is kind of right when his sort of general star is kind of movie stardom is kind of rising off of his taxi success and it's just really fun to kind of see him really dig into kind of being this Klingon and just if you really if like if you were going to really debut the fuller Klingon language and you if you really wanted anybody to be sounding like those hard Klingon like consonants it's 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 Christopher Lloyd because he mm-hmm. really just puts all of his all whenever he's so focused on just saying these words to his like fellow Klingons. It's just yeah. it's just fun. Yeah. And like they, they, his his character introduction is like his girlfriend like gives him these plans for the Genesis like you know he basically is like these plans for the Genesis device or whatever or like kind of the video, and then she's like you know it'll you'll be most pleased by it. And he's like you've seen it, and she's immediately like yes I have. He's like that's unfortunate, and you know in a very Klingon way she knows it's like okay well that's the end. Well, then, like, and then and then I believe her response to that is understood. <laughs> yes. But it's just like this this big intensity too. It's just like he's like gonna just you know in a very Klingon way he's just gonna outright kill like his girlfriend because she no one else can see these plans other than him. Well, it's and great. then that's like the like the idea behind him is that he's like a Klingon extremist who 
definitely isn't going along with like whatever peace negotiations that are ongoing with the federation that's the idea yes for sure yeah like and he, so he, he's, he's he's definitely like he's like ronin from guardians of the galaxy yeah for he's sure he's like, he's basically yeah. on the most extreme end of uh you know kind of on the most extreme end of the klingon and federation relationship which is you know in in many ways supposed to mirror um the uh U.S. and Soviet Union what, relationship. What, what is it? It's not really until movie five that they delve into all this, is it? Six. Six. I just find it funny that, like, you know, this is one plot element that kind of pops up in all of the Star Trek movies, but so little of them have ever focused on the Klingons versus the Federation. Right, yeah, because that's actually... Because that's... When, we, when you talk about the new generation, or the next... Not the new generation, the next generation... Um. Uh, that's one of the things where the you know eventually in that it's in the future and Klingons are part of the Federation at that right, point too. Right. So that's something that's definitely explored. You know, as they get further into kind of the series. Oh, and, oh yeah. And, and, I... and the thing is, is like the Klingon culture is really fleshed out in that Next Generation era. Like mm. it's really like because you got to think about too. Like you've seen those original Klingons on the show, right? And, mm-hmm, and it's right, like they're very right. different. Like a general kind of like. I, 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 uh, an idea um, that's similar to what it pops into the movies, but this is really the true beginning of like the Klingons as we know them, as right. like they are in pop culture with with the very warrior type of race and the very ruthlessness that that defines their early history and but all that sort of stuff. What what I'm saying is that it's funny because you know that's his whole deal, but the way this movie is plotted, it's not like that is center stage in any other part of the story. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? It's not like right. that we're centering this around the Klingon peace negotiations and this guy is mucking it up. Mm-hmm. But it's literally like, I just find it fascinating that up until movie six, they always keep on bringing up this Klingon thing and none of the movies or very few of them actually like really have that front and center. It's, it's always just something going on in the world. Mm-hmm. Is like this, and it's something that you would think is like really, really big. Um, but I only remember because isn't isn't is six the one where he's like, let them die? Yes, yeah, that, that that's awesome. Um, I do gotta before we move on from the scene where he's watching the 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 Genesis video for the first time with his crew. Mm-hmm. I did. I, I had to like look up the line exactly because it's the most Christopher Lloyd. The way I know what you're Lloyd talking about. Yeah, reads I know this line you're... is so Christopher Lloyd because it's one a of the very Christopher Lloyd line. Because basically, is. like they're talking about like what this device is, and obviously Krug's like kind of like sees it as like this ultimate weapon. And one of the other guys is like, "No, it's uh, sure. It's like impressive. They can make planets." And it's and then what is it? Christopher was like, "Oh yes, new cities and homes in the country. Your woman at your side. Children playing at your feet and overhead, fluttering in the." breeze the flag of the federation charming just like that whole line of just like him like a woman at your side like he's just the way that he says that line is so but he, he he says it in such like a like i don't know what other way to say it other than like in the a way very, that christopher lloyd it's exactly how said. you would imagine like if christopher anything lloyd. that is that is the only thing time when christopher lloyd the person comes through in the character is the way that he says that yeah um, for sure so yeah. they're they're yeah. So the Klingons are on this thing for the Genesis planet. They eventually destroy the USS Grissom, which is the science vessel, uh, leaving Savik and David and young Spock stranded on the planet. 
And meanwhile, Kirk and his crew are on their way to also rendezvous with the planet to find Spock's body, not knowing yet that Spock has sort of rearisen. You know what's really also weird about this movie? This movie just shit gets real, real quick. All of a sudden out of nowhere, because mm-hmm. like up until then, it's like a it's a pretty it's a pretty breezy spacefaring romp. Like, you know, it's it, it, it's right. like, and maybe like that the, is kind that's, of what, part that's of my washbuck- criticism is. Yeah, that's washbuckling element, right? Where they're stealing the Enterprise, right? And they're like, jaunty, jaunty, jaunty. And then you're right, like, it's all it's all fun, casual Star Trek and it's good. And then you get into like going into the third act and then they like kill Kirk's son and they blow up the Enterprise, and then Kirk is fighting to the death on an exploding planet, and like, and the, like, the stakes just went from one to eleven out of nowhere. It, it was very, yeah. much, it, it's not too dissimilar to when the stakes really got rose uh, raised in in uh, Son of Kong earlier, like last month, <laughs> where oh. out of nowhere an island is just blowing up. In this one. It was just kind of like night, and then like, like it, it didn't really dawn on me. And then they like, so then they like off, like fucking like his his son bites it, David bites it, and then they cut back to Kirk, and then like you know, uh, Shatner's doing a he's performing like his son just got killed, and I'm like, whoa, this movie just got dark. Yeah, that super little, fast. That whole scene though, I love because they they do this thing where. Both ships know that the other's there with the big the big dogfight where the Klingons obviously are are invisible. That's one of the big things about the bird of prey is that it, it has an invisibility cloak. Mm-hmm. Um, but Kirk and his crew kind of notice there's a you know a disturbance, so they're both like kind of waiting on the other to make the move. They have this big dogfight, and it's funny again like this great little thing where you know Krug and his you know, Krug is expecting the final blow and then realizes, oh shit, like they're disabled. Like something's going on over there. Kirk calls in to be like, whoever you are, like, you know, dis- disarm, you know, Krug gets the upper hand with the hostages. And then again, just a great, I love this little landing, this reading and Klingon. I'm not going to do the Klingon ease, but, um, but he, the Krug is just like, you know, he, he reveals he has the hostages. He, you know, he reveals Savick and David and, and Savick's like, by the way, also like, uh, another Vulcan science officer you might know very well is also here and partially alive, not in the way you know him, but like kind of revealing like, Hey, Spock's actually kind of alive maybe. Mm-hmm. But then I just love the way that Christopher Lloyd does this line where he's like, kill one of them. I don't care which one. And just the, oh, look, yeah. the look that he gives again, he's speaking in the Klingon and just great. It's just a lot of, Lot, uh, it's just well, a great line read, and then it, David. It's a way. It's a way to like suddenly make the villain really villainous. Yeah, so I gotta then, give the movie credit for that. And then David, yeah, David basically, you know, he, they're gonna he's gonna kill Savick, the the Klingon officer, and then um, David runs in and basically takes the blow. And I love and, and Nimoy when in all the bonus features was very complimentary of the way Shatner portrayed learning about the death of his son oh it's great and like most he said one of the things and i love this too is the way that kirk falls and misses the chair mm-hmm. um and and just the the, the other shock and he and, and Nemo is like it's it's the captain you know stumbling it's the captain actually stumbling and it's just it's great and it, it really showcases again like yes there's a very shatner moments coming up like the shatner moments that you know but he's a great performer 
and he's a great actor. And just moments like that really just remind you that he's really good at what he does. And yeah, he's maybe. really he's really good at being Kirk. Maybe in retrospect, I do have to give more credit to the fact that it gets real so soon because it's like when you follow the plot up until that from their point of view, from like Kirk's point of view, yeah. this wasn't a dangerous mission. Right. They were just like, like, it was more of like a fun heist mission. If anything. it's a heist mission that, yes, like, you know, it's like, you know what, if they're if they're going to take away the Enterprise from us anyway, like kind of the, the screw it notion, like we're right, going right. We're, if this is my last thing, like I am going to get my friend and I'm going to put my friend at peace. Right. That's the whole situation. And then as soon as that, yeah, as soon as the situation gets real, it's like the, their only option left, they're going to be boarded and they're going to blow up the Enterprise. And what I love, especially by the way, this that the, the Enterprise self-destruction codes are also right out of the original series. Just love that detail. They're the same codes from the original series. Mm-hmm. But I just, the, the whole thing where it's like, they all have the heavy heart about it. And I, I just love how much they, you know, obviously because it's, they need the three people. And normally it would be the captain, the science officer and the engineer. And obviously Chekhov is the acting science officer in this case, but just the heavy heart that even again, Scotty has for like, okay, we're going to blow up this ship because it's our only means. And then the classic moment too, where all the Klingons come on the ship and they can't find it. And then the Klingons like, there is a voice and it's counting. Like, what do you mean? And they can lean in and they, the ship destruction. And then, then Christopher Lloyd just stands up like, get out of there. And then the ship blows up. That was awesome. And, th- and they look at it from the surface and they're like, well, there goes the Enterprise. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and then and then it like ends in like a big face off on a exploding planet. Right. Uh they, and... they get Krug to come down and Kirk and and Krug have a big, you know, classic end of episode Trek fist fight. Um, which also culminates in a very Shatnerism right here. I am- And he kicks him off. It's great. It's so great. There's also one shot where he like dives at at uh yeah. at Adam, yeah. which is hilarious. Mm-hmm. I love that. I mean, this was very much like classic like Shatner fighting the Gorn like type of yeah. Like, uh, I you know I always love in these movies like that two fist like hitting the shoulders. Yes, they always do. Very, very classic track and very classic Shatner fight for sure. Yeah, yeah, I liked all that. So yeah, all that stuff was pretty good. I I liked Christopher Lloyd. I mean, this is when he's showing that he's he's a real petty son of a bitch. And it's like and it's good. It's 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 effective Mm -hmm. and it works. And he has a classic falls to his death type of thing. But it also leads to another funny villain moment when so they go they, they get beamed up and then like. Like Kirk, I forget exactly what Kirk says to the one Klingon guy. Oh, where he's like gonna kill him, and then like the Klingons like, I don't deserve to live because like all Klingons, they I guess the thing is like they they kind of all have death wishes or they don't mind right, getting yeah. killed in the line. Oh no, he's thing. like, why won't you kill me? Like he's like literally like, why aren't you killing me? Like that's that's the thing he asks. And he's like, I don't deserve to live, so I'll kill you later. Yeah, and then and then later on when they get out of there. And he's like, ah, take him to, you know, take him to the brig or whatever. Uh, and then he's like, I thought you were going to kill me. He, yeah. <laughs> I just love that guy. I thought you were going to kill me. What? I, I, what's all this about? Yeah, no, that's funny. It's really funny. That guy. Um, and then we're, we're on our way back to Vulcan, where we also, by the way, first, we get this great scene where, you know, because now Spock has kind of returned to basically like the Spock we know. Like he's grown... Luckily enough, he grew to that age by the time they got off the planet. 
but he's kind of passed out because he really, really doesn't have like a mind or a soul because it's all in McCoy. And there's just this great moment where McCoy is talking to Spock mm-hmm. and just basically is like, you know what? Like, I can't believe I'm saying this, but I miss you. Like, I miss having mm-hmm. you here. And, you know, if I'm, if I need, you know, basically it's like, if we need whatever we need to do to get this mind back in you, cause we need you, you know? And I just, for the entire saga that McCoy and Spock have gone through in the series, it's a really touching moment that like, you know, McCoy realizes that Spock really is, you know, even though he is a green blooded son of a bitch at their friends and that they're, that he's a big part of the team. Yeah, I agree. And then, and then th- this all leads to the last sequence of the film, which I thought was, this is where I thought that it did come full circle and it stuck the landing. Mm-hmm. I thought like everything about this, like drew me into the mythology of Star Trek, but it also into the characters. Um, yeah. Just top marks for all of this. Because the whole point is that originally they, they were bringing Spock back for these funeral rites, but then when they get back because Spock's new body is alive, they reveal that like, oh, he Spock still breeds. How do you want to proceed? And Sarek says that he wants to do this other ancient ceremony that would bring the living body and the Katra back together to bring back like the living soul. Right. And I love this whole this whole little thing where it's like they they're like you know, the high priestess is like, you know, this is the, this is a Vulcan ritual that hasn't been done in centuries. Like, are you sure you want to present? Is, you know, it, that's where we get, it's not logical. It's like nothing when it comes to my son, you know, no, none of my thoughts when it comes to my son is, are logical. But then we also get this great moment where like, you know, who possesses the Katra and then McCoy, you know, raises his hand and they're all explaining to him, like, listen, this is going to be a great danger. You know, this is, you know, an ancient technique that has been performed like are you comfortable it's like he's like i accept the danger and then he like looks off to the sides like hell of a hell of a time to to go to go through that like how hell of a time to accept it or something like that like he just is just like still has a little snide remark where it's like hell of a hell of a hell of a timing on this all thing mm-hmm. which is great and then we get the whole yeah we get the whole kind of this kind of montage of this whole ceremony being performed and the last moments of the film are, are be- they're beautiful because it's this whole thing where Spock is being led away in his new body and, you know, his mind kind of reunited, but he's not all himself yet. Right. He still doesn't have all of himself, but he has kind of his soul is, is his Katra back in him. But then he like pauses as he's being led away and he's in this white robe with a hood and he like takes the hood off and he looks right at Kirk and he walks up to him. And there's this whole moment where it's like, my father tells me you were a great friend and you you brought me back here and there's this whole thing is this they're back and forth and kirk's trying to like lead them on like yes you know you remember i'm kirk like all that sort of stuff and then the big line where it's like jim your name is jim right yeah and then the breakthrough where it's like oh he's like starting to finally like remember some stuff and it's just then the whole crew and and, and nimoy nimoy is just so good he's great he's perfect he's so good in these movies and I don't I didn't even realize like how much I was missing him in this movie until like he does that whole turnaround with the and taking the hood off. And then just like that little moment, and then he shares like a look with uh with uh, McCoy. Mm-hmm. And that look was great. And then he looks back and then and then all of the crew comes up to greet him. And it's just it, it's just awesome. It's just I, I love it. Really yeah. satisfying, really, really satisfying. well done. For for sure, and it's it brings it really does bring it to a nice satisfying conclusion 
of like, okay, Spock is back and maybe he's not all there yet, but like the crew is just so happy to see him and they're all like reintroducing themselves. And it's just like a beautiful moment to like stop on, and especially because you also have Sarek there and just kind of like, he has a little moment where Kirk too at the end where he's just like, you know, basically like kind of a thank you for going through all this and everything like that. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. And then that ba- that basically where we leave the movie, I do have a couple of things I want to mention that we kind of skipped over. Uh, one detail I really like about this movie is the opening credits where uh, Nimoy is only listed as the director. And the way that they do it is that there's a big gap in between Shatner's name and DeForest Kelly's name. And there's the white light, which represents that Spock isn't there at that time. Which oh, I really, really liked. That's fun. I, like uh, I just got to mention the that weird mangy Klingon dog. That that dog was awesome. I loved it. There's like this little animatronic puppet dog that's just like extremely like feral and like jagged edge and like just crazy and just Kirk just it's just right next to Kirk's sit. And I think what's there's another moment. Oh, now I remember. There's another moment I like where um when they destroy the Grissom, um <laughs> Kirk is really upset and he's like. I wanted prisoners. I wanted information. And he's like the one killing officer with like a, with terror on his face. Like it was a lucky shot, sir. And then Kirk just shoots him and just disintegrates him into nothing. And I think there's a, right around that moment. There's another like feed the dog, like feed him. And it's like, feed him. Like, and then the dog just like looks well mangy. Mm-hmm. Also, I love when Kirk is on the planet and they go back to where the microbes were. And now it's this big slithering snake thing. That's just basically very Star Trekian. Right. It's just it just goes up and tries to kill like just suffocate Kirk, which apparently that was one of the stories I was kind of saving for the movie. That was very hard to shoot because it was slimy. They couldn't do the reverse shot, so they had to do it all on like strings, mm. like and like time it very well, which was very impressive. Uh, what one that speaking of a special effects, one of the special effects that I really liked in the movie was when he disintegrates that guy. Oh he, yeah, he shoots the one Klingon and then disintegrates him the special effects on i i just thought that looked really cool that looks really cool and i yeah. also liked um because they i know they had to do a lot of work too on getting the decloaking of the bird of prey um right and i think just the way just the little kind of like subtle way that it comes back out of like uh spaces i think is pretty cool um but yeah i think that's pretty much it for the movie i think the search for spock is a still a fun jaunty time and i i I, I enjoy it. I really I really do enjoy it as part of this trilogy. I think it's a, it's a key part of it. Yeah, it, it's a good piece of connective material between the two movies. It, it's definitely more of like the casual. I don't want to say it's like very much just feels like an episode because I think like what happens in it is maybe a little bit more substantial. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think that one of the reasons there it's good to end on the ending was because I think that that made the whole thing worth it. And just following these characters and, you know, and their relationships, just going on an adventure is just fun. And I think that the way that Nimoy, and I definitely, there are things in this movie that I think that Nimoy does even better in the next one from what I remember. Yeah. I mean, this so, is, his, yeah, this so is his is first that. ever. Yeah. It's his first ever directorial effort. And I think that, you know, he does have a period where he's a very, you know, pretty successful director. Um, and I think that he learns a lot from this movie and he, I think he brings it up. Um, and I also think 
that he also has a really good eye for directing comedy, which we'll talk about next time too. Yeah, it does. I, I think maybe one of the reasons why even the, the next one is better is because that feels like more of just kind of like a story out of nowhere mm-hmm. that like wrap up this like unofficial trilogy. Whereas like this movie feels like, like, you know, engineered from the point of like, well, it's gotta be about getting Spock back. And I don't know. And again, my, my one tiny criticism is I don't know if the movie fully overcomes just feeling that way. Yeah. But at the end of the day, I mean, it's still, it fits in and it still has the energy that you love from wrath of Khan and, and is, and then when it ends and it says like the adventure continues, I want to see the adventure continue. I want to, I'm like, all right, now let's go. We have the crew back. Let's go on another adventure. So the movie does a good job of getting me jazzed that way. It really, again, just as I've said, it really is the characters that really bring it all home together. And it's the characters and like the moments with or her, like that moment with Uhura and that moment with Sulu and like, you know, kind of Kirk's reaction to David's death and, and that ending scene. It's the characters that really keep you coming back, I think, to these original series movies and yeah, when that event, the adventures continue to come on the screen, you just know that there's more fun times with the crew ahead now that, you know, they, they feel whole again with Spock. Yeah. Um, so with that, I think it's time for us to get into a little bit of the aftermath. So the movie releases on June 1st, 1984 uh, in a record breaking 1,996 theaters uh, across the United States. Um it opened up in that big 84 summer that also featured Temple of Doom, Gremlins, Ghostbusters, and Top Secret, which were some of the biggest ones um, in theaters at that exact same time. So it was big, lots of big movies at the box office. Um, and Search for Spock ended up doing pretty well in sense, uh, pretty much the same, honestly, as The Wrath of Khan. Uh, it did make $16 million on its first weekend, so basically made its whole budget back on opening weekend. Eventually made uh, $76.5 uh, in the United States and $87 million worldwide. So a little bit underneath where Wrath of Khan was. Wrath of Khan was more into that the, the $90 million, uh, worldwide gross. But Paramount is still extremely happy because it's still a lower budget thing with a big thing. It's actually, very again, very comparable to how United Artists took in those early Bond movies where the budgets were just, they were able to compact those budgets so much that even just the 90 million, 80 million were just very satisfactory box office grosses. And uh, at this point, Paramount knows this K like we're going to make about, you know, they're kind of suspecting we're going to make around this a 90 million, 80 million type of idea. If we can keep these budgets low, there's definitely an audience. There's definitely a drive and there's definitely more to come for the franchise. So Paramount's, very very happy and they were extremely happy with Nimoy as the director um and so they were very happy with how smooth you heard it in kind of our preamble they were happy with how smooth the production was that there was no big issues there was no fighting other than the Christie Alley thing which again they were able to move on from very quickly it was exactly a type of it was like a pitch perfect ideal production for them so they're very happy and want to continue with Star Trek critically generally Favorable reviews, uh, definitely down below um, Wrath of Khan mostly. Uh, some people did like this movie better, Wrath of Khan. Uh, most people agreed that the characters and the performances remain strong and sort of the drive in terms of the, 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 the emotion towards the Spock and the ending was a big hit with everybody. Though, like you and me, most people also did criticize the plot and just how the plot 
kind of proceeds in the movie. Um, the weird thing about this is that it was weird because for a long time, I think this movie got lumped in with the, oh, only the even numbered Star Trek movies are good, which is mm-hmm. true up through basically like, uh, you know, like first contact and insurrection and everything like that. Like even it continues into the, the, the next generation movies. But really, this movie does have a special love among, you know, the, the Star Trek fan base especially, but is generally well-regarded among the people who see it. Like, it's one of those things where people, you know, it's like, it is kind of considered the weakest of this arc, but people still genuinely like the movie. But it still kind of sometimes gets lumped in like, oh, all the odd number of Star Trek movies are the bad ones. Like, it does get lumped into that sometimes. Mm-hmm. Um, but generally speaking, people really do like the character moments. And again, just like this whole trilogy, which, you know, we will conclude on our next Star Trek episode. Can't wait. Yeah, I've only uh, seen the next one once, and I'm really looking forward to watching it again. So, yeah, so if we're just going to go right into it, the next Star Trek episode you'll hear will be the wrap-up of this kind of unofficial three-episode arc. And I turn it unofficial because it's an officially a three-episode arc, a third three-movie arc, but it wasn't planned, and, you know, that each movie is kind of treated as its own individual production as opposed to being like, oh, we're going to do, like, Empire Strikes Back and then Return of the Jedi. No, it's each one is there. So it's kind of an unofficial but official. Anyways... We search for Spock in this one. And next time, we got to go find some whales, Will. We got to go find some whales. So <laughs> Clearly the, the obvious uh, follow-up. So next time on the Star Trek thing, uh, we're going to do Star Trek IV, The Voyage Home. And if you want to know what I think about this movie, I have a poster of it in my apartment. So mm-hmm. uh, you can tell I'm very excited. I see it. It's back there. So next time, though, uh, in our in our very busy but fun April month, it is not a uh, I almost said it's not a Godzilla film. It isn't a Godzilla film. It isn't a Bond film. It isn't a Star Trek film. We are going back to the world of Kong for another movie. I'm very excited to see. I've never seen this. I've started my research. This one was a very simple production story. Not going to be true for this Kong movie. There's going to be a lot to discuss when it comes to the Dino De Laurentiis produced Jeff Bridges, Jessica Lange starring 1976 version of King Kong. And I think it's going to be a really fun time. Looking forward to it. But that's it, everybody. Thanks again for joining us for another edition of Bonzilla Presents. If we're done, let's get those plugs in there. Bonzillabot at gmail.com. Twitter.com says Bonzilla007. That is the best place to contact us. If you have thoughts on Godzilla vs. Kong or Star Trek 3 or Kong 76, please let us know. Facebook.com says Bonzilla007. Uh, SoundCloud.com slash Bonzilla007. Like and subscribe. iTunes and SoundCloud. It was very apparent you were all excited for the Godzilla vs. Kong episode. Lots of uh, lots of feedback on that one. Lots of listens. So thanks again, everybody, for continuing to join us. We have a blast doing this, and I, I have a blast sharing it with you guys. All right. And until next time, take care. All right. And don't forget, Christopher Lloyd is great. <laughs>